On a sort of sunny Sunday last November, I woke up in the mood for adventure. I called my friend Sam to see if she was up for adventure too. She was. And 30 minutes later, I was out the door, church bells ringing crisp and clear in the late November morning, the smell of wood fires faint on the air. We met up at Tire, our funky neighborhood coffee shop, and were sent off with warm coffees and hearty wishes to stay safe and have fun. And with that, we left the Shire. I mean, Keats. Sam lives in my neighborhood and is a singer-songwriter from Australia. She's an enthusiastic immigrant to Germany, up on all the history and local politics and language. She even taught me the gang sign for Moabit, back when our Keats had gangs, 21 represent. Along the way, we were picking up my friend Julius, who was meeting us with a box of bird's milk candy, a traditional delicacy from his native land, Lithuania. Julius was in town on a short break from his medical studies in Vilnius. He had been having adventures of his own the night before, and well into the morning. Back in Paris, where we both met, we used to call that a nuit blanche. But here in Berlin, we just call it Saturday night. We picked Julius up at Zoologische Bahnhof. And now, our little fellowship was complete. We jumped from the underground to the overground, and our adventure was finally, fully, underway. We were headed to Potsdam to see some monoliths on the Bridge of Spies. I didn't tell Sam and Julius much about our quest, but I figured, who doesn't want to go on an adventure that involves traveling through a forest of ancient trees, exploring a beautiful palace, crossing a treacherous bridge, and confronting a monumental symbol of power? I mean, what else are you going to do on a Sunday? Welcome to Artifice, art you can hear. Artipus visits German artist Malte Kebel's installation, Monoliths, at Glienekebrücke in Potsdam. There are a couple of ways to get to Potsdam from Berlin, but I really wanted to start at the Glienecke Palace, because it's a palace, and walk over the Glienecke Bridge. I didn't know it was the Bridge of Spies until Sam, who knows everything about Berlin, told me. So I wasn't there to do any Cold War reenactments. I wanted to walk over the bridge because the monoliths were on the other side. If you're a longtime listener of Artipus, you may have noticed that every year I choose a theme, an idea to explore through art, in the hope that art can help make sense of this crazy world of ours. At the beginning of 2017, with Donald Trump about to start his term in office, with the largest number of U.S. troops just sent to Europe since World War II, with Vladimir Putin tightening restrictions against his own people and Russian diplomats turning up dead, with Assad bombing his own country back to the Middle Ages, and with Kim Jong-un seeming to wake up from his long slumber now that he finally had someone to play with. The theme I was interested in exploring was the art of war. I wanted to see if art could affect world politics, and how artists were responding to the threat of war and the reality of war as some were escaping. But like any good adventure, my explorations took me on a different path to learn a different lesson. I wound up exploring past wars, war memorials, displacement, and integration, trying to remember how this all started. It was such a long, long time ago. The monoliths that Sam, Julius, and I were off to see are actually four massive segments of the Berlin Wall, recognized throughout Germany as a memorial to the Cold War. German artist Malte Kebel managed to get his hands on a few of them, 
transform them, and then deposit them on the former Soviet side of the Bridge of Spies. Monoliths are kind of scary, whether they're geographical, like the Ayers Rock in Australia, arranged, like Stonehenge, or alien-made, like in 2001, A Space Odyssey. They never really seem to be harbingers of good news. Mysterious, ominous, they kind of only indicate large-scale rapid change we can't comprehend and usually can't handle. The Peterman orogeny, Neolithic engineering, technology. It was still pretty early in the day, and Sam was wide awake, full of energy and really excited. She was excited on the bus because we were on the top deck, in the front seats with nothing but a window separating us in the road below. She was excited at the excellent reverb, she said, on the PA system when the driver called the stops. She was excited at every single house we passed. She was the first one down the steps and out the door when we reached Schloss Glienicke. Julius and I were a little less enthusiastic. Julius was struggling to stay awake, hoping there would be a cafe at the palace that served tea. I was hoping the palace would just be open and warm inside, so I could find a place to try my bird's milk candy. Neither of these things panned out. The palace was built as a pleasure palace for Prince Karl of Prussia, not for us. At least, not for us beyond walking around the grounds and enjoying the neoclassical casino, the follies, and the gilded pretension. Schloss Glienicke flaunts itself as Schloss Babelsberg across the Glienicke Lake. Schloss Babelsberg being the summer home of Kaiser Wilhelm I, and therefore bigger and more serious, a neo-Gothic reprimand on the other side of the lake. Castle versus castle, old versus new, spy versus spy. All these castles, dramatic autumn lighting, and crisp air was making me hungry for a roast. Julius was still searching for tea. Sam was ready to go on. So it was Sam who led the way to the Bridge of Spies, telling us about the history and the significance of the bridge during the Cold War. Glienickebrücke, as it's properly called, connects Germany's capital city with the former residence of Prussian kings and German kaisers in the federal state of Brandenburg, across the river Havel, and connected by a bridge in this very spot since 1640, although not the same bridge. It's been destroyed and rebuilt a few times. We're on version 4 now. After World War II, Potsdam was part of the Soviet occupation zone, landing in East Germany but connected to West Berlin by the same bridge, Glienicke 4.0. But all of West Berlin was encircled, by the famous concrete wall that divided the city down the middle, and by the miles and miles of barbed wire and mesh that enclosed the rest of the western part of the city, effectively creating an island of western democracy deep in the heart of Soviet East Germany. Visitors to West Berlin from other parts of West Germany could use designated roads and entry points to get there. But after 1961, when the concrete sections of the wall were constructed, Glienickebrücke was no longer one of them. It remained closed to both West and East civilians through the rest of the Cold War, but became a convenient point to trade Soviet spies for Western spies, and vice versa. Glienickebrücke was nicknamed Bridge of Spies kind of as a joke. Haha, <laughs> Stasi humor. Some clever German compared it to the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, the final route for criminals before they were thrown into prison on the other side. For West Germans, a Soviet spy walking the bridge to Potsdam was giving up his freedom. For East Germans, a Western spy walking the bridge to Glienicke Park was being swallowed by capitalism. Everyone's a loser in the game of spy versus spy. (laughs) 
The current version of the bridge was built in 1907, with a similar approach to ironwork construction as the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Julius was annoyed with the workmanship of the bridge itself, impatient with the blockier filigree and the gaps in the plating, the repair work to damage done after the war. Julius, however, has been spending time in Zurich, where the sidewalks never erupt and there's no garbage in the streets because the Swiss are rich and neutral and, according to French artist Christian Boltanski, have no reason to die. Halfway across the bridge, Sam finds the line that defined the Soviet occupation zone, a white line painted right across the bridge. One flimsy painted white line that could take you from Soviet socialism to Western democracy, or vice versa, in a footstep. Both sides convinced they were the savior of mankind. I mean, the Communist Manifesto was written less than 100 years after the US and French constitutions were signed. They were both considered the great experiments of the 20th century, the future and all you had to do was step across. So we stepped across. On the Potsdam end, the bridge widens on each side to a sort of circular terrace where you can look out over the river. A freestanding row of neoclassical columns fan out on either side as well, welcoming you to the splendor of Potsdam. And across the bridge road from us, we find the monoliths. There are four of them, and they are arranged in a circle, kind of like Stonehenge, only it's no mystery how these got here. Rectangular slabs of concrete stood on their end, as they stood when they formed part of the Berlin Wall. But these segments are painted bright colors, with forms on the outward-facing surfaces. We watch a small family pushing a baby carriage approach from the Potsdam side, stop and check the monoliths out, interact with them for a little while. We're too far away to tell if the little family likes them or not, are inspired to contemplation or to play, are trying to understand them or if they don't care. At any rate, they don't look very terrified, so that's good. I think it's interesting that the pieces of the wall have been moved over to the Potsdam side, the former East German side. Pragmatic Sam points out that there's more room on this side of the bridge. Julius finds steps and we descend to the riverbank so we can pass underneath the bridge, troll-free and emerge on the other side. Now we're right up against the monoliths, circling them, four massive towering objects that face outward and inward at the same time. The pieces of the wall are huge, 3.6 meters tall, made of poured concrete and rebar. The artist Malte Hebel has painted over them, a glittering gold on the inside of the circle and primary colors on the outside. In the center of the outer-facing surfaces are large, light-sensitive shapes, made of the same plastic used for those glow-in-the-dark stars you can paste to your kids or your own bedroom ceiling. The shapes are vaguely humanoid. At night they glow after soaking up the light from the sun all day and are further illuminated by a programmed light show of ultraviolet rays and atmospheric blue light. And when Kebble visits, he's fond of tracing outlines on them with a light stick, a heart, a star, a sun and moon, as if they're being tickled by their creator. The figures, though, are one-dimensional, almost like shadows cast on the pieces of the wall, and remind me on one hand of the shadows of humans left behind on the city walls of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, souls trapped inside these remnants of past fascism, the ugly stains of brutal technology, like eternal flames to remind us how this all started. It was such a long, long time ago. Living in Berlin today, there are remnants of the wall everywhere, a kilometer left intact by the old Gestapo headquarters. Skeletal remains of rebar that marched down Bernauerstrasse, 
foundations embedded and engraved in the streets, marking the long line of that ridiculous wall. But it's hard to imagine what it was really like to have a wall dividing a city right down the middle, to be living with it like someone else's reality imposed on your own. Of course, it is someone else's reality, isn't it? It was the Allied forces in the Soviets who decided what would happen to Europe after World War II, carving up the continent like a Frankenstein monster or a golem, each taking parts they found useful for their own ideas and goals and without any say from the people actually living there. It's just so strange, this idea of building a wall through a city or to border a country. Especially when borders move, cities evolve and expand, populations shift, ideas, ideologies, power structures tower and fall. We are a migrating species, moving from hunting ground to fertile ground, across land masses, seas, and planets. Walls, city walls, border walls, are such puny structures compared to our determination to get around them, over them, under them, or through them. Because really, what's the point of building walls except to break through them? And the stronger the wall, the more advanced the technology becomes to tear them down. The monoliths that appear in 2001 A Space Odyssey are not walls, or even pieces of a wall. They are standalone objects. They are, well, monoliths. Every time they appear, they are meant to encourage humanity toward further technological development. They accomplish this, but mostly out of fear. Nobody knows what they are, not the apes in prehistory, not the astronauts of the future. As a result, humans react by discovering tools that turn into weapons that they turn on each other. The technology itself, the monolith, in turn only absorbs. It absorbs the energy expended by the apes, the humans, and ultimately the astronauts, absorbing intelligence and experience and emotions, until the monoliths themselves become humanoid, divine, and, I don't know, maybe arrange themselves in a circle somewhere and just wait to be worshipped by creatures who don't understand them, sacrifice to them, get possessive of them, restrict access, build a wall. On the bridge, the wind is picking up and the temperature is dropping. Our merry little band isn't so merry all of a sudden, and we seek shelter in a nearby cafe, an old auto mechanic garage from mid-century turned into a French restaurant, but preserving the vintage car theme. It's as if a little pocket of La Résistance has been barricaded here since 1945, holed up with a bunch of cars they couldn't drive anywhere, caught in the no-man's land between the great experiments of Soviet socialism and Western capitalism like a VW or a Citroën. We sat at one end of a long wooden table. Germans love communal dining. A family with two little kids on the other end. The family sizes us up for a few minutes and suddenly packs up and moves to another table. We couldn't figure out what we had done to offend them until one of the adults reassures us it was them, not us. They were worried their rambunctious toddlers would annoy us a glimmer of the socialist ideal in their logic, because a capitalist family would expect us to make room for them. We wondered if they were the same family we saw on the bridge earlier, if they had checked out the giant pieces of the Berlin Wall installed on this side of the Soviet line while they sipped hot chocolate among the vintage cars, the technological feats of the past coming back for a visit. One of the things I really admire about artists is just how resourceful they can be. We think of creativity being applied to canvas or music or interpretive dance. 
But artists also often have to be creative about how they create. For his monoliths, Kebel not only talked the city of Berlin into giving him pieces of the Berlin Wall as canvases, but then he needed a space to work on them. These pieces are big and heavy, and they don't easily fit through the doors of an atelier. Kebel secured for himself a public parking garage near Tegel Airport to use as an outdoor public studio while he worked. From there, he had to figure out the logistics of getting these massive cement and steel pieces first to Potsdamer Platz, where they were installed as part of the Berlin Festival of Lights in December, and then to the Bridge of Spies. Artist as director, artist as engineer, artist as logistician. I wonder, in the aftermath of war, what kind of lines artists would have drawn. Last year's theme, The Art of War, started with an interview with Russian performance artist Leo Tsoi, who observed that the meaning of monuments can change. The Statue of Liberty can become Lady Victory. The Berlin Wall, constructed as a means of separation and containment, protecting East Germans from the evils of Western capitalism, can become a symbol of unity and peace. The space Kebel's monoliths create, their simple circle, is meant to invite viewers in, to gather, talk, contemplate, commune, the direct opposite of their original purpose of division and disconnection. And the humanoid shapes on the outside also remind me of the rounded, fluid figures of Matisse, the joyful circle of dancers celebrating in primary colors. They are inclusive, inviting you in. The monoliths do the same, as though the glowing figures on the outward-facing side are there to protect you while you stand in the center, dancing around you like druids while you think about, talk about, wall, and wars, and women, and men, and the future, and all that we were and all that we can be. It's like a stargate, a portal to the cosmos in each of us. Kebel's plans for the monoliths are to travel the world, install them in cities across the globe, and encourage interaction. They're meant to act as reminders of the aftermath and outcome of war. After all, it was a world war. Everybody was involved, and everybody was affected. The monoliths also represent our better natures, our futures, our possibilities. A peaceful revolution, a chance to rebuild and reunify, a chance to connect. Sam and Julius and I wander through the pretty little town of Potsdam, past the fabricated Soviet parts and the original German parts, picking out the houses we would each live in one day. We're looking for a castle. Potsdam is actually full of them, but our destination is a specific one. We trundle along, determined, night falling, losing our way, trekking through mud and gravel and finally climbing to the top of a big hill. And there it is, the great gilded Rococo Versailles of Potsdam. Schloss Sanssouci, built as a retreat for Frederick the Great, who died here, alone with his dogs, as the last titled king of Prussia, to Sachange. It was deep dusk by this time, and the terraced gardens were barren and dry. We picked our way down through the withered rose bushes and vines, the garden statuary coffined against the cold, the fountain turned off and bone dry. Full night falls quickly, but we find our way out of the Royal Park and back onto the cobblestone streets of Potsdam. A cozy pub on the corner is ready to welcome us with hot drinks. 
our adventure coming to an end. But before we go in to warm our hairy toes and check our smartphones, we look at the sky. The night air has a bite to it, but the clouds have cleared. My God, said Julius, it's full of stars. Malta Kebbel's monolith installation can be seen on the Glienicke Bridge in Potsdam until the 30th of March. If you happen to be in Berlin, head over on January 20th for the Potsdam Festival of Lights, featuring Kebbel's monoliths. And you can find out more about the monolith's global project at monoliths.de. Julius made it back to Lithuania in time for his first class in Vilnius, where he had invited me a couple of years ago to visit the KGB Museum. It featured on Artipus as a special two-part episode and is available on SoundCloud as the episode called Art Redux, A Little Bit of History Repeating. She's not only a musician herself, but my neighbor Sam also runs Berlin's Sofa Salon, a home concert series featuring independent musicians from around the world for intimate concerts in Berlin. That's how we met the wonderful She Makes War, featured in Artipus episode 45, Nevermind the Bullards. And we've got another collaboration coming up with Sofa Salon and Indie Berlin in February. Check our website for details and how you can be a part of it, or visit Sofa Salon at berlinsofasalon.de. Oh, and by the way, the theme for this year's Artipus is Minority Report, how 21st century algorithms affect 20th century isms. We'll be focusing especially on sound art, yay, and digital art because, well, I don't really get digital art, do you? Come along with me and let's figure it all out together every two weeks on Artipus, art you can hear. Music used in this episode is the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss II, tracks used under Creative Commons. Artipus is an independently produced podcast supporting artists, museums and galleries, and local musicians. If you connected to this episode, please support the making of the next one. Just click on the donate button at our website, artipus.com. That's A-R-T-I-P-O-E-U-S dot com. Transcripts and photos of this episode and more are available at medium.com. You're probably listening to us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, but you can also stream us through one of our media partners. Bear Radio. Bear Radio is an audio platform for English-speaking listeners that brings together the best producers, hosts, and personalities in Berlin. For a complete show list, visit bearradio.org. World Radio Paris the first all-English radio station in the City of Light, reaching over one million English speakers in Grand Paris. WRP broadcasts syndicated shows and locally produced content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Broadcasting on digital audio band, look for World Radio Paris or call letters WRP. Find the full schedule at worldradioparis.fr. Glarify.com, the world's first art map app the interactive global mapping tool that lets you locate artist studios, openings, and exhibits in your town and around the world. Sign up at Glarify.com. The Dark Rooms, a curator and artist collective dedicated to reaching beyond the art market through pop-up immersive art experiences in Berlin and beyond. 
Learn more at thedarkrooms.de. Gallery A Plus in Berlin, an independent exhibition space providing emerging artists a concentrated platform for presentation and discussion. Learn about upcoming exhibits and events at aplus.de. Fontaine Bay, dealers in trans avant-garde editions and rare artworks for curation, exhibition, and private collections. Subscribe to their newsletter and access exclusive collaborations and collections at fontainebay.com. Suzu, the studio exchange for artists, helping artists find new inspiration in new places and grow their art. It's like creative Airbnb. List your studio at stuzu.com. And Artipus is very proud to support Hangar One, a nonprofit organization helping Berlin's war zone migrants integrate into their new communities through art. Please support their work at hangarone.org. I'm Susie Kollek, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear.